This month is all Edgar Allan Poe on Blacklock Audio Tales. Up first, Edgar Allan Poe, Death of Edgar Allan Poe, The Unparalleled Adventures of One Hans Flau, The Gold Bug, Four Beasts in One, The Homo Camel Leopard, Murders and the Rue Morgue, The Mystery of Mary Roget, the Balloon Hoax, Miss Found in a Bottle, The Oval Portrait. Blacklock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. It's still cold outside in a lot of places. Why don't you get some of those dino sound slippers? Walk around, make dino sounds. It's super fun. Be a clown. Get some of those cool t-shirts that they have all around at founditemclothing.com. Look like your favorite cool guy from your favorite 80s movie. Or maybe a bad guy from an 80s movie if that's your thing too. Or just, do you like t-shirts that celebrate cult films from the 80s and 90s? Founditemclothing.com, you should go with them. And while we're talking about people, a quick shout out to Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio, Google it. Search for it online. Uh, Zach Ferguson, look for the show notes for Articulate Warbling, a podcast I produce. Let's see, what else? Um, search for Twisted Pulp Radio, I think it is what it's called. And Twisted Pulp Radio, Twisted Pulp Show. Anyway, it's a pulp radio show produced out of some radio station in California, and I lend some voice talents to that occasionally okay what else do we have in the show notes dave's corner of the universe check out dave's corner of the universe by just simply searching for dave's corner of the universe there's no other dave's corners of the universe out there and also listen for dave's little specials here and there on black clock audio tales and also dave's underground goat shenanigans which just had a christmas special drop and hopefully we'll have its episode one happen within the month of January. So we'll see when all that happens. It's going to be super cool. And also, don't forget to follow Black Clock Audio Tales on social media. Just look for PGTTCM. That's the website, PGTTCM.com, for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, our monthly Cthulhu Mythos show that, oh, unfortunately, we just had a reading last month, but hey, this month, we're going to go back to having an episode. And also, let's not forget that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PGTTCM, or look for Black Clock Audio Tales if that doesn't work. And let's not forget you are wonderful, and I think you're great. Okay. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 1. The Mystery of Marie Roget, Part 4. But there are still other and stronger reasons for believing them so deposited than any which I have as yet urged. And now, let me beg your notice to the highly artificial arrangement of the articles. 
On the upper stone lay a white petticoat, on the second a silk scarf. Scarred around were a parasol, gloves, and a pocket-handkerchief bearing the name Marie Roger. Here is just such an arrangement as would naturally be made by a not over-acute person, wishing to dispose the articles naturally. But it is by no means a really natural arrangement. I should rather have looked to see the things all lying on the ground and trampled underfoot. In the narrow limits of that bower, it would have been scarcely possible that the petticoat and scarf should have retained a position upon the stones, when subjected to the brushing to and fro of many struggling persons. There was evidence, it is said, of a struggle, and the earth was trampled, the bushes were broken but the petticoat and the scarf were found deposited as if upon shelves. The pieces of the frock torn out by the bushes were about three inches wide and six inches long. One part was the hem of the frock, and it had been mended. They looked like strips torn off. Here, inadvertently, Le Soleil has employed an exceedingly suspicious phrase. The pieces, as described, do indeed look like strips torn off but purposely, and by hand. It is one of the rarest of accidents that a piece is torn off from any garment such as is now in question by the agency of a thorn, from the very nature of such fabrics. A thorn or nail becoming entangled in them tears them rectangularly, divides them into two longitudinal rents at right angles with each other, and meeting at an apex where the thorn enters, but it is scarcely possible to conceive the piece torn off. I never so knew it, nor did you. To tear a piece off from such fabric, two distinct forces, in different directions, will be in almost every case required. If there be two edges to the fabric, if, for example, it be a pocket-handkerchief, and it is desired to tear from it a slip, then, and then only, will the one force serve the purpose. But in the present case, the question is of a dress presenting but one edge. To tear a piece from the interior, where no edge is presented, could only be effected by a miracle through the agency of thorns, and no one thorn could accomplish it. But even where an edge is presented, two thorns will be necessary, operating, the one in two distinct directions, and the other in one and this is the supposition that the edge is unhemmed. If hemmed, the matter is nearly out of the question. We thus see the numerous and great obstacles in the way of pieces being torn off through the simple agency of thorns. Yet we are required to believe not only that one piece, but that many have been so torn. And one part, too, was the hem of the frock. Another piece was part of the skirt, not the hem. That is to say, was torn completely out through the agency of thorns from the uncaged interior of the dress. These, I say, are things which one may well be pardoned for disbelieving. Yet, taken collectedly, they form, perhaps, less of a reasonable ground for suspicion than the one startling circumstance of the articles having been left in this thicket at all, by any murderers who had enough precaution to think of removing the corpse. You will not have apprehended me rightly, however, if you suppose it is my design to deny this thicket as the scene of the outrage. There might have been a wrong here, or more possibly an accident, at Madame de Luc's. 
But, in fact, this is the point of minor importance. We are not engaged in an attempt to discover the scene, nor to produce the perpetrators of the murder. What I have adduced, notwithstanding the minuteness with which I have adduced it, has been with the view, first, to show the folly of the positive and headlong assertions of Le Soleil, but secondly, and chiefly, to bring you, by the most natural route, to a further contemplation of the doubt whether this assassination has, or has not been, the work of a gang. We will resume this question by mere allusion to the revolting details of the surgeon examined at the request. It is only necessary to say that its published inferences, in regard to the number of ruffians, have been properly ridiculed as unjust and totally baseless by all the reputable anatomists of Paris. Not that the matter might not have been as inferred, but that there was no ground for the inference. Was there not much for another? Let us reflect now upon the traces of a struggle, and let me ask what these traces have been supposed to demonstrate. A gang. But do they not rather demonstrate the absence of a gang? What struggle could have taken place, what struggle so violent and so enduring as to have left its traces in all directions, between a weak and defenseless girl and the gang of ruffians imagined? The silent grasp of a few rough arms, and all would have been over. The victim must have been absolutely passive at their will. You will bear in mind that the arguments urged against the thicket as the scene are applicable, in chief part, only against it as the scene of an outrage committed by more than a single individual. If we imagine but one violator, we can conceive, and thus only conceive, the struggle of so violent and so obstinate a nature as to have left the traces apparent. And again, I have already mentioned the suspicion to be excited by the fact that the articles in question were suffered to remain at all in the thicket where discovered. It seems almost impossible that these evidences of guilt should have been accidentally left where found. There was sufficient presence of mind, it is supposed, to remove the corpse, and yet a more positive evidence than the corpse itself, whose features might have been quickly obliterated by decay, is allowed to lie conspicuously in the scene of the outrage. I allude to the handkerchief with the name of the deceased. If this was an accident, it was not the accident of a gang. We can imagine it only the accident of an individual. Let us see. An individual has committed the murder. He is alone with the ghost of the departed. He is appalled by what lies motionless before him. The fury of his passion is over, and there is abundant room in his heart for the natural awe of the deed. His is none of that confidence which the presence of numbers inevitably inspires. He is alone with the dead. He trembles and is bewildered. Yet there is a necessity for disposing of the corpse. He bears it through the river, but leaves behind him the other evidences of guilt. For it is difficult, if not impossible, to carry all the burden at once, and it will be easy to return for what is left. But in this toilsome journey to the water his fears redouble within him. The sounds of life encompass his path. A dozen times he hears or fancies the step of an observer. Even the very lights from the city bewilder him. Yet, in time and by long and frequent pauses of deep agony, he reaches the river's brink, 
and disposes of his ghastly charge, perhaps through the medium of a boat. But now what treasure does the world hold? What threat of vengeance could it hold out, which would have power to urge the return of that lonely murderer over that toilsome and perilous path to the thicket and its blood-chilling recollections? He returns not. Let the circumstances be what they may. He could not return if he would. His sole thought is immediate escape. He turns his back forever upon these dreadful shrubberies, and flees as from the wrath to come. But how with a gang? Their number would have inspired them with confidence, if, indeed, confidence is ever wanting in the breast of an errant blackguard. And of errant blackguards alone are the supposed gangs ever constituted. Their number, I say, would have prevented the bewildering and unreasoning terror which I have imagined to paralyze the single man. Could we suppose an oversight in one, or two, or three, this oversight would have been remedied by a fourth. They would have left nothing behind them, for their number would have enabled them to carry all at once. There would have been no need of return. Consider now the circumstance that in the outer garment of the corpse, when found, a slip, about a foot wide, had been torn upward from the bottom hem to the waist, wound three times round the waist, and secured by a sort of hitch in the back. This was done with the obvious design of affording a handle by which to carry the body. But would any number of men have dreamed of resorting to such an expedient? To three or four, the limbs of the corpse would have afforded not only a sufficient, but the best possible hold. The device is that of a single individual. And this brings us to the fact that between the thicket and the river, the rails of the fences were found taken down, and the ground bore evident traces of some heavy burden having been dragged along it. But would a number of men have put themselves to the superfluous trouble of taking down a fence for the purpose of dragging through it a corpse which they might have lifted over any fence in an instant? Would a number of men have so dragged a corpse at all as to have left evident traces of the dragging? And here we must refer to an observation of Le Commercial an observation upon which I have already, in some measure, commented. A piece, says this journal, of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats was torn out and tied under her chin, around the back of her head, probably to prevent screams. This was done by fellows who had no pocket-handkerchiefs. I have before suggested that a genuine blackguard is never without a pocket-handkerchief, but it is not to this fact that I now especially advert that it was not through want of a handkerchief for the purpose imagined by Le Commerciel, that this bandage was employed, is rendered apparent by the handkerchief left in the thicket, and that the object was not to prevent screams, appears also from the bandage having been employed in the preference to what would so much better have answered the purpose. But the language of the evidence speaks of the strip in question as found around the neck, fitting loosely, and secured with a hard knot. These words are sufficiently vague, but differ materially from those of Le Commerciel. The slip was eighteen inches wide, and therefore, although of muslin, would form a strong band when folded or rumpled longitudinally, and thus rumpled it was discovered. My inference is this. The solitary murderer, having borne the corpse for some distance, whether from the thicket or elsewhere, by means of the bandage hitched around its middle, found the weight, in this mode of procedure, 
too much for his strength. He resolved to drag the burthen. The evidence goes to show that it was dragged. With this object in view, it became necessary to attach something like a rope to one of the extremities. It could best be attached about the neck, where the head would prevent it slipping off. And now the murderer bethought him, unquestionably, of the bandage about the loins. He would have used this, but for its volition about the corpse, the hitch which embarrassed it, and the reflection that it had not been torn off from the garment. It was easier to tear a new slip from the petticoat. He tore it, made it fast about the neck, and so dragged his victim to the brink of the river. That this bandage, only attainable with trouble and delay, and all but imperfectly answering its purpose, that this bandage was employed at all, demonstrates that the necessity for its employment sprang from circumstances arising at the period when the handkerchief was no longer attainable, that is to say, arising, as we have imagined, after quitting the thicket, if the thicket it was, and on the road between the thicket and the river. But the evidence, you will say, of Madame de Luc points out especially to the presence of a gang in the vicinity of the thicket at or about the epoch of the murder. This I grant. I doubt if there were not a dozen gangs, such as described by Madame de Luc, in and about the vicinity of the Barrier du Roule, at or about the period of this tragedy. But the gang which has drawn upon itself this pointed animadversion, although the somewhat tardy and very suspicious evidence of Madame de Luc, is the only gang which is represented by that honest and scrupulous old lady as having eaten her cakes and swallowed her brandy without putting themselves to the trouble of making her payment. Et inc il est But what is the precise evidence of Madame de Luc? A gang of miscreants made their appearance, behaved boisterously, ate and drank without making payment, followed in the route of the young man and girl, returned to the inn about dusk, and recrossed the river as in great haste. Now, this great haste, very possibly seemed greater haste in the eyes of Madame de Luc, since she dwelt lingeringly and lamentingly upon her violated cakes and ale, cakes and ale for which she might still have entertained a faint hope of compensation. Why otherwise, since it was about dusk, should she make a point of the haste? It is no cause for wonder, surely, that even a gang of blackguards should make haste to go at home, when a wide river is to be crossed in small boats, when storm impends, and when night approaches. I say, approaches, for the night had not yet arrived. It was only about dusk that the indecent haste of these miscreants offended the sober eyes of Madame de Luc. But we are told that it was upon this very evening that Madame de Luc, as well as her eldest son, heard the screams of a female in the vicinity of the inn. And in what words does Madame de Luc designate the period of the evening at which these screams were heard? It was soon after dark, she says, but soon after dark is at least dark, and about dusk is certainly daylight. Thus it is abundantly clear that the gang quitted the barrier du rule prior to the screams overheard by Madame de Luc, and although in all the many reports of the evidence the relative expressions in question were distinctly and invariably employed, just as I have employed them in this conversation with yourself, 
no notice whatever of the gross discrepancy has as yet been taken by any of the public journals or by any of the myrmidons of police i shall add but one to the arguments against a gang but this one has to my own understanding at least a weight altogether irresistible under the circumstances of large reward offered and full pardon to any king's evidence it is not to be imagined for a moment that some member of a gang of low ruffians or of any body of men would not long ago have betrayed his accomplices each one of a gang so placed is not so much greedy of reward or anxious for escape as fearful of betrayal he betrays eagerly and early that he may not himself be betrayed that the secret has not been divulged is the very best of proof that it is in fact a secret the horrors of this dark deed are known only to one or two living human beings and to god let us sum up now the meagre yet certain fruits of our long analysis we have attained the idea either of a fatal accident under the roof of madame de luc or of a murder perpetrated in the thicket at the barrier du roule by a lover or at least by an intimate and secret associate of the deceased this associate is of swarthy complexion this complexion the hitch in the bandage and the sailor's knot with which the bonnet ribbon is tied point to a seaman his companionship with the deceased a gay but not an abject young girl designates him as above the grade of a common sailor here the well-written and urgent communications to the journals are much in the way of corroboration the circumstance of the first elopement as mentioned by le mercury tends to blend the idea of this seaman with that of the naval officer who is first known to have led the unfortunate into crime and here most fitly comes the consideration of the continued absence of him of the dark complexion let me pause to observe that the complexion of the man is dark and swarthy it was no common swarthiness which constituted the sole point of remembrance both as regards valence and madame de luc but why is this man absent was he murdered by the gang if so why are there only traces of the assassinated girl the scene of the two outrages will naturally be supposed identical and where is his corpse the assassins would most probably have disposed of both in the same way but it may be said that this man lives and is deterred from making himself known through dread of being charged with the murder this consideration might be supposed to operate upon him now at this late period since it has been given in evidence that he was seen with marie but it would have no force at the period of the deed the first impulse of an innocent man would have been to announce the outrage and to aid in identifying the ruffians this polity would have suggested he had been seen with the girl he had crossed the river with her in an open ferry-boat the denouncing of the assassins would have appeared even to an idiot the surest and sole means of relieving himself with suspicion we cannot suppose him on the night of the fatal sunday both innocent himself and incognizant of an outrage committed yet only under such circumstances is it possible to imagine that he would have failed if alive in the denouncements of the assassin and what means are ours of attaining the truth we shall find these means multiplying and gathering distinctness as we proceed 
Let us sift to the bottom this affair of the first elopement. Let us know the full history of the officer with his present circumstances, and his whereabouts at the precise period of the murder. Let us carefully compare with each other the various communications sent to the evening paper, in which the object was to inculpate a gang. This done, let us compare these communications, both as regards style and manuscript, with those sent to the morning paper at a previous period, and insisting so vehemently upon the guilt of Menet. And all this done, let us again compare these various communications with the known manuscripts of the officer. Let us endeavor to ascertain, by repeated questionings of Madame de Luc and her boys, as well as the omnibus driver, Valence, something more of the personal appearance and bearing of the man of dark complexion. Queries, skillfully directed, will not fail to elicit, from some of these parties, information on this particular point, or upon others, information which the parties themselves may not even be aware of possessing. And let us now trace the boat picked up by the bargeman on the morning of Monday the 23rd of June, and which was removed from the barge office, without the cognizance of the officer in attendance, and without the rudder, at some period prior to the discovery of the corpse. With a proper caution and perseverance, we shall infallibly trace this boat, for not only can the bargeman who picked it up identify it, but the rudder is at hand. The rudder of a sailboat would not have been abandoned without inquiry by anyone altogether at ease in heart. And here let me pause to insinuate a question. There was no advertisement of the picking up of this boat. It was silently taken to the barge office, and as silently removed. But its owner, or employer, how happened he, at so early a period as Tuesday morning, to be informed, without the agency of advertisement, of the locality of the boat taken up on Monday, unless we imagine some connection with the navy, some personal permanent connection leading to cognizance of its minute it interests, its petty local news. In speaking of the lonely assassin dragging his burden to the shore, I have already suggested the probability of his availing himself of a boat. Now we are to understand that Marie Roget was precipitated from a boat. This would naturally have been the case. The corpse could not have been trusted to the shallow waters of the shore. The peculiar marks on the back and shoulders of the victim tell of the bottom ribs of a boat. That the body was found without weight is also corroborative of the idea. If thrown from the shore, a weight would have been attached. We can only account for its absence by supposing the murderer to have neglected the precaution of supplying himself with it before pushing off. In the act of consigning the corpse to the water, he would unquestionably have noticed his oversight, but then no remedy would have been at hand. Any risk would have been preferred to a return to the accursed shore. Having rid himself of his ghastly charge, the murderer would have hastened to the city. There, at some obscure wharf, he would have leaped on land. But the boat, would he have secured it? He would have been in too great haste for such things as securing a boat. Moreover, in fastening it to the wharf, he would have felt as if securing evidence against himself. His natural thought would have been to cast from him, as far as possible, all that had held connection with his crime. He would not only have fled from the wharf, but he would not have permitted the boat to remain. 
assuredly he would have cast it adrift. Let us pursue our fancies. In the morning, the wretch is stricken with unutterable horror at findings that the boat has been picked up and detained at a locality which he is in the daily habit of frequenting, at a locality, perhaps, which his duty compels him to frequent. The next night, without daring to ask for the rudder, he removes it. Now, where is that rudderless boat? Let it be one of our first purposes to discover. With the first glimpse we obtain of it, the dawn of our success shall begin. This boat shall guide us with a rapidity which will surprise even ourselves to him who employed it in the midnight of the fatal Sabbath. Corroboration will rise upon corroboration, and the murderer will be traced. It will be understood that I speak of coincidences, and no more. What I have said above upon this topic must suffice. In my own heart there dwells no faith in Praetor Nature. The nature and its God are two. No man who thinks will deny that the latter, creating the former, can at will control and modify it, is also unquestionable. I say, at will, for the question is of will, and not, as the insanity of logic has assumed, of power. It is not that the deity cannot modify his laws, but that we insult him in imagining a possible necessity for modification. In their origin these laws were fashioned to embrace all contingencies which could lie in the future. With God all is now. I repeat, then, that I speak of these things only as coincidences. And farther, in what I relate, it will be seen that between the fate of the unhappy Mary Cecilia Rogers, as far as that fate is known, and the fate of one Marie Roger, up to a certain epoch in her history, there has existed a parallel in the contemplation of whose wonderful exactitude the reason becomes embarrassed. I say all this will be seen, but let it not for a moment be supposed that in proceeding with the sad narrative Marie from the epoch just mentioned, and in tracing to its denouement the mystery which enshrouded her, it is my covert design to hint at an extension of the parallel or even to suggest that the measures adopted in Paris for the discovery of the assassin of the Grisette, or measures founded in any similar ratiocination, would produce any similar result. For, in respect to the latter branch of the supposition, it should be considered that the most trifling variation in the facts of the two cases might give rise to the most important miscalculations by diverting thoroughly the two courses of events very much as in arithmetic an error which in its own individuality may be inappreciable produces at length by dint of multiplication at all points of the process a result enormously at variance with truth and in regard to the former branch we must not fail to hold in view that the very calculus of probabilities to which i have referred forbids all idea of the extension of the parallel forbids it with a positiveness strong and decided, just in proportion as this parallel has already been long drawn and exact. This is one of those anomalous propositions, which, seemingly appealing to thought altogether apart from the mathematical, is yet one which only the mathematician can fully entertain. Nothing, for example, is more difficult than to convince the merely general reader that the fact of sixes, having been thrown twice in succession by a player at dice, 
is sufficient cause for betting the largest odds that sixes will not be thrown in the third attempt. A suggestion to this effect is usually rejected by the intellect at once. It does not appear that the two throws which have been completed, and which lie now absolutely in the past, can have influence upon the throw which exists only in the future. The chance for throwing sixes seems to be precisely as it was at any ordinary time. That is to say, subject only to the influence of the various other throws which may be made by the dice. And this is a reflection which appears so exceedingly obvious that attempts to convert it are received more frequently with a derisive smile than with anything like respectful attention. The error here involved, a gross error redolent of mischief, I cannot pretend to expose within the limits assigned me at present, and with the philosophical it needs no exposure. It may be sufficient here to say that it forms one of an infinite series of mistakes which arise in the path of reason through our propensity for seeking truth in detail. End of the Mystery of Marie Roget, Part 4《Astounding News by Express for your Norfolk. The Atlantic crossed in three days. Signal triumph of Mr. Monk Mason's flying machine. Arrival at Sullivan's Island near Charlestown, South Carolina of Mr. Mason, Mr. Robert Holland, Mr. Henson, Mr. Harrison Ainsworth, and four others in the steering balloon Victoria, after a passage of seventy-five hours from land to land. Full particulars of the voyage.' The subjoined jeu d'esprit, with the preceding heading in magnificent capitals, well interspersed with notes of admiration, was originally published, as a matter of fact, in the New York Sun, a daily newspaper, and therein fully subserved the purpose of creating indigestible aliment for the quidnuncs during the few hours intervening between a couple of the Charleston mails. The rush for the sole paper which had the news was something beyond even the prodigious, and in fact, if, as some assert, the Victoria did not absolutely accomplish the voyage recorded, it will be difficult to assign a reason why she should not have accomplished it. The great problem is at length solved. The air, as well as the earth and the ocean, has been subdued by science, and will become a common and convenient highway for mankind. The Atlantic has been actually crossed in a balloon, and this too without difficulty, without any great apparent danger, with thorough control of the machine, and in the inconceivably brief period of seventy-five hours from shore to shore. By the energy of an agent at Charleston, South Carolina, we are enabled to be the first to furnish the public with a detailed account of this most extraordinary voyage which was performed between Saturday, the 6th instant, at 11 a.m., and 2 p.m. on Tuesday, the ninth instant, by Sir Everard Bringhurst, Mr. Osborne, a nephew of Lord Bentinck's, Mr. Monk Mason, and Mr. Robert Holland, the well-known aeronauts, Mr. Harrison Ainsworth, author of Jack Shepherd and Company, and Mr. Henson, the projector of the late unsuccessful flying machine, with two seamen from Woolwich, in all eight persons. 
the particulars furnished below may be relied on as authentic and accurate in every respect as with a slight exception they are copied verbatim from the joint diaries of mr monk mason and mr harrison ainsworth to whose politeness our agent is also indebted for much verbal information respecting the balloon itself its construction and other matters of interest the only alteration in the manuscript received has been made for the purpose of throwing the hurried account of our agent mr forsyth into a connected and intelligible form the balloon two very decided failures of late those of mr hansen and sir george cayley had much weakened the public interest in the subject of aerial navigation mr hansen's scheme which at first was considered very feasible even by men of science was founded upon the principle of an inclined plane started from an eminence by an extrinsic force applied and continued by the revolution of impinging veins in form and number resembling the veins of a windmill but in all the experiments made with models at the adelaide gallery it was found that the operation of these fans not only did not propel the machine but actually impeded its flight the only propelling force it ever exhibited was the mere impetus acquired from the descent of the inclined plane and this impetus carried the machine farther when the veins were at rest than when they were in motion a fact which sufficiently demonstrates their inutility and in the absence of the propelling which was also the sustaining power the whole fabric would necessarily descend this consideration led sir george cayley to think only of adapting a propeller to some machine having of itself an independent power of support in a word to a balloon the idea however being novel or original with sir george only so far as regards the mode of its application to practice he exhibited a model of his invention at the polytechnic institution the propelling principle or power was here also applied to interrupted surfaces or veins put in revolution these veins were four in number but were found entirely ineffectual in moving the balloon or in aiding its ascending power the whole project was thus a complete failure it was at this juncture that mr monk mason whose voyage from dover to whaleburg in the balloon assault occasioned so much excitement in eighteen thirty seven conceived the idea of employing the principle of the archimedean screw for the purpose of propulsion through the air rightly attributing the failure of mr henson's scheme and of sir george cayley's to the interruption of surface in the independent veins he made the first public experiment at willie's room but afterward removed his model to the adelaide gallery like sir george cayley's balloon his own was an ellipsoid its length was thirteen feet six inches height six feet eight inches it contained about three hundred and twenty cubic feet of gas which if pure hydrogen would support twenty-one pounds upon its first inflation before the gas has time to deteriorate or escape the weight of the whole machine and apparatus was seventeen pounds leaving about four pounds to spare 
Beneath the center of the balloon was a frame of light wood, about nine feet long, and rigged on to the balloon itself with a network in the customary manner. From this framework was suspended a wicker basket, or car. The screw consists of an axis of hollow brass tube, eighteen inches in length, through which, upon a semi-spiral inclined at fifteen degrees, pass a series of steel-wire radii, two feet long, and thus projecting a foot on either side. These radii are connected at the outer extremities by two bands of flattened wire, the whole in this manner forming the framework of the screw, which is completed by a covering of oiled silk, cut into gauze and tightened so as to present a tolerably uniform surface. At each end of its axis, this screw is supported by pillars of hollow brass tube descending from the hoop. In the lower ends of these tubes are holes, in which the pivots of the axis revolve. From the end of the axis, which is next the car, proceeds a shaft of steel, connecting the screw with the pinion of a piece of spring machinery fixed in the car. By the operation of the spring, the screw is made to revolve with great rapidity, communicating a progressive motion to the hole. By the means of the rudder, the machine was readily turned in any direction. The spring was the great power, compared with its dimensions, being capable of raising 45 pounds upon a barrel of 4 inches diameter after the first turn, and gradually increasing as it was wound up. It weighed, altogether, 8 pounds 6 ounces. The rudder was a light frame of cane covered with silk shaped somewhat like a battle door, and was about three feet long, and at the widest one foot. Its weight was about two ounces. It could be turned flat and directed upwards or downwards, as well as to the right or left, and thus enabled the aeronaut to transfer the resistance of the air, which, in an inclined position, it must generate in its passage, to any side upon which he might desire to act thus determining the balloon in the opposite direction. This model, which, through want of time, we have necessarily described in an imperfect manner, was put in action at the Adelaide Gallery, where it accomplished a velocity of five miles per hour, although, strange to say, it excited very little interest in comparison with the previous complex machine of Mr. Henson. So resolute is the world to despise anything which carries with it an air of simplicity. To accomplish the great desideratum of aerial navigation, it was very generally supposed that some exceedingly complicated application must be made of some unusually profound principle in dynamics. So well satisfied, however, was Mr. Mason of the ultimate success of his invention that he determined to construct immediately, if possible, a balloon of sufficient capacity to test the question by a voyage of some extent, the original design being to cross the British Channel, as before, in the Nassau balloon. To carry out his views, he solicited and obtained the patronage of Sir Everard Bringhurst and Mr. Osborne, two gentlemen well known for scientific acquirement, and especially for the interest they have exhibited in the progress of aerostation. The project, at the desire of Mr. Osborne, was kept a profound secret from the public, 
the only persons entrusted with the design being those actually engaged in the construction of the machine which was built under the superintendence of mr mason mr holland sir everard bringhurst and mr osborne at the seat of the later gentleman near penstruth hall in wales mr mason accompanied by his friend mr hainsworth was admitted to a private view of the balloon on saturday last when the two gentlemen made final arrangements to be included in the adventure we are not informed for what reason the two seamen were also included in the party but in the course of a day or two we shall put our readers in possession of the minutest particulars respecting this extraordinary voyage the balloon is composed of silk varnished with a liquid gum caoutchouc it is of vast dimensions containing more than forty thousand cubic feet of gas but as coal gas was employed in place of the more expensive and inconvenient hydrogen the supporting power of the machine when fully inflated and immediately after inflation is not more than about two thousand five hundred pounds the coal gas is not only much less costly but is easily procured and managed for its introduction into common use for purpose of aerostation we are indebted to mr charles green up to his discovery the process of inflation was not only exceedingly expensive but uncertain two and even three days have frequently been wasted in futile attempts to procure a sufficiency of hydrogen to fill a balloon from which it had great tendency to escape owing to its extreme subtlety and its affinity for the surrounding atmosphere in a balloon sufficiently perfect to retain its contents of cold gas unaltered in quantity or amount for six months an equal quantity of hydrogen could not be maintained in equal purity for six weeks the supporting power being estimated at two thousand five hundred pounds and the united weights of the party amounting only to about one thousand two hundred there was left a surplus of one thousand three hundred of which again one thousand two hundred was exhausted by ballast arranged in bags of different sizes with their respective weights marked upon them by cordage barometers telescopes barrels containing provision for a fortnight water casks cloaks carpet bags and various other indispensable matters including a coffee warmer contrived for warming coffee by means of slack line so as to dispense altogether with fire if it should be judged prudent to do so all these articles with the exception of the ballast and a few trifles were suspended from the hoop overhead the car is much smaller and lighter in proportion than the one appended to the model it is formed of a light wicker and is wonderfully strong for so frail looking a machine its rim is about four feet deep the rudder is also very much larger in proportion than that of the model and the screw is considerably smaller the balloon is furnished besides with a grapnel and a guide rope which later is of the most indispensable importance a few words in explanation will here be necessary for such of our readers as are not conversant with the details of aerostation as soon as the balloon quits the earth it is subjected to the influence of many circumstances tending to create a difference in its weight 
augmenting or diminishing its ascending power. For example, there may be a deposition of dew upon the silk, to the extent even of several hundred pounds. Ballast has then to be thrown out, or the machine may descend. This ballast being discarded, and a clear sunshine evaporating the dew, and at the same time expanding the gas in the silk, the whole will again rapidly ascend. To check this ascent, the only recourse is, or rather was, until Mr. Green's invention of the guide rope, the permission of the escape of gas from the valve. But in the loss of gas is a proportionate general loss of ascending power, so that, in a comparatively brief period, the best constructed balloon must necessarily exhaust all its recourses and come to the earth. This was the great obstacle to voyages of length. The guide-rope remedies the difficulty in the simplest manner conceivable. It is merely a very long rope, which is suffered to trail from the car, and the effect of which is to prevent the balloon from changing its level in any material degree. If, for example, there should be a deposition of moisture upon the silk, and the machine begins to descend in consequence, there will be no necessity for discharging ballast to remedy the increase of weight, for it is remedied or counteracted in an exactly just proportion by the deposit on the ground of just so much of the end of the rope as is necessary. If, on the other hand, any circumstances should cause undue levity and consequent ascent, this levity is immediately counteracted by the additional weight of rope upraised from the earth. Thus the balloon can neither ascend or descend except within very narrow limits, and its resources, either in gas or ballast, remain comparatively unimpaired. When passing over an expanse of water, it becomes necessary to employ small kegs of copper or wood, filled with liquid ballast of a lighter nature than water. These float, and serve all the purposes of a mere rope on land. Another most important office of the guide-rope is to point out the direction of the balloon. The rope drags, either on land or sea, while the balloon is free. The later, consequently, is always in advance, when any progress whatever is made. A comparison, therefore, by means of the compass, of the relative positions of the two objects will always indicate the course. In the same way, the angle formed by the rope with the vertical axis of the machine indicates the velocity. When there is no angle, in other words, when the rope hangs perpendicularly, the whole apparatus is stationary. But the larger the angle, that is to say, the farther the balloon precedes the end of the rope, the greater the velocity and the converse. As the original design was to cross the British Channel and alight as near Paris as possible, the voyagers had taken the precaution to prepare themselves with passports directed to all parts of the continent, specifying the nature of the expedition, as in the case of the Nassau voyage, and entitling the adventurers to exemption from the usual formalities of office. Unexpected events, however, rendered these passports superfluous. The inflation was commenced very quietly at daybreak, on Saturday morning, the sixth instant, in the courtyard of Wilfor House, Mr. Osborne's seat about a mile from Penstruthal, in North Wales. 
and at seven minutes past eleven, everything being ready for departure, the balloon was set free, rising gently but steadily, in a direction nearly south, no use being made for the first half-hour of either the screw or the rudder. We proceed now with the journal, as transcribed by Mr. Forthyde, from the joint manuscripts of Mr. Monk Mason and Mr. Hainsworth. The body of the journal, as given, is in the handwriting of Mr. Mason, and a postscript is appended, each day, by Mr. Ainsworth, who has in preparation, and will shortly give the public a more minute, and no doubt a thrillingly interesting account of the voyage. The Journal Saturday April the 6th. Every preparation likely to embarrass us. Having been made overnight, we commenced the inflation this morning at daybreak, but owing to a thick fog which encumbered the folds of the silk and rendered it unmanageable, we did not get through before nearly eleven o'clock. Cut loose then, in high spirits, and rose gently but steadily with a light breeze at north, which bore us in the direction of the British Channel found the ascending force greater than we had expected, and, as we arose higher and so got clear of the cliffs, and more in the sun's rays, our ascent became very rapid. I did not wish, however, to lose gas at so early a period of the adventure, and so concluded to ascend for the present. We soon ran out our guide-rope, but even when we had raised it clear of the earth, we still went up very rapidly. The balloon was unusually steady, and looked beautifully. In about ten minutes after starting, the barometer indicated an altitude of fifty thousand feet. The weather was remarkably fine, and the view of the subjacent country, a most romantic one when seen from any point, was now especially sublime. The numerous deep gorges presented the appearance of lakes, on account of the dense vapours with which they were filled and the pinnacles and crags to the south-east, piled in inextricable confusion, resembling nothing so much as the giant cities of eastern fable. We were rapidly approaching the mountains in the south, but our elevation was more than sufficient to enable us to pass them in safety. In a few minutes we soared over them in fine style, and Mr. Ainsworth, with the seamen, was surprised at their apparent want of altitude when viewed from the car, this tendency of great elevation in a balloon being to reduce inequalities of the surface below to nearly a dead level. At half-past eleven, still proceeding nearly south, we obtained our first view of the Bristol Channel, and in fifteen minutes afterward the line of breakers on the coast appeared immediately beneath us, and we were fairly out at sea. We now resolved to let off enough gas to bring our guide-rope, with the boys affixed, into the water. This was immediately done, and we commenced a gradual descent. In about twenty minutes our first boy dipped, and at the touch of the second, soon afterwards, we remained stationary as to elevation. We were all now anxious to test the efficiency of the rudder and screw, and we put them both into requisition forthwith for the purpose of altering our direction more to the eastward, and in a line for Paris. By means of the rudder we instantly effected the necessary change of direction, and our course was brought nearly at right angle to that of the wind, 
when we set in motion the spring of the screw, and were rejoiced to find it propel us readily as desired. Upon this we gave nine hearty cheers, and dropped in the sea a bottle, enclosing a slip of parchment with a brief account of the principle of the invention. Hardly, however, had we done with our rejoicings when an unforeseen accident occurred which discouraged us in no little degree. The steel rod connecting the spring with the propeller was suddenly jerked out of place at the car end by a swaying of the car through some movement of one of the two seamen we had taken up and in an instant hung dangling out of reach from the pivot of the axis of the screw while we were endeavouring to regain it our attention being completely absorbed we became involved in a strong current of wind from the east which bore us with rapidly increasing force towards the atlantic we soon found ourselves driving out to sea at the rate of not less certainly than fifty or sixty miles an hour, so that we came up with Cape Clear at some forty miles to our north before we had secured the rod, and had time to think what we were about. It was now that Mr. Ainsworth made an extraordinary, but to my fancy a by no means unreasonable or chimerical, proposition, in which he was instantly seconded by Mr. Holland. Viz that we should take advantage of the strong gale which bore us on, and in place of beating back to Paris, make an attempt to reach the coast of North America. After slight reflection, I gave a willing assent to this bold proposition, which, strange to say, met with objection from the two seamen only. As a stronger party, however, we overruled their fears, and kept resolutely upon our course. We steered due west, but as the trailing of the boys materially impeded our progress, and we had the balloon abundantly at command, either for ascent or descent, we first threw out fifty pounds of ballast, and then wound up, by the means of a windlass, so much of the rope as brought it quite clear of the sea. We perceived the effect of this manoeuvre immediately, in a vastly increased rate of progress and, as the gale freshened, we flew with a velocity nearly inconceivable, the guide-rope flying out behind the car, like a streamer from a vessel. It is needless to say that a very short time sufficed us to lose sight of the coast. We passed over innumerable vessels of all kinds, a few of which were endeavouring to beat us, but the most of them lying to. We occasioned the greatest excitement on board all, an excitement greatly relished by ourselves, and especially by our two men, who now, under the influence of a dram of Geneva, seemed resolved to give all scruple or fear to the wind. Many of the vessels fired signal guns, and in all we were saluted with loud cheers, which we heard with surprising distinctness, and the waving of caps and handkerchiefs. We kept on in this manner throughout the day, with no material incident, and, as the shades of night closed around us, we made a rough estimate of the distance traversed. It could not have been less than five hundred miles, and was probably much more. The propeller was kept in constant operation, and no doubt aided our progress materially. As the sun went down, the gale freshened into an absolute hurricane, and the ocean beneath was clearly visible on account of its phosphorescence. The wind was from the east all night and gave us the brightest omen of success. We suffered no little from cold, and the dampness of the atmosphere was most unpleasant. 
but the ample space in the car enabled us to lie down, and by means of cloaks and a few blankets we did sufficiently well. Postscript by Mr. Ainsworth The last nine hours have been unquestionably the most exciting of my life. I can conceive nothing more sublimating than the strange peril and novelty of an adventure such as this. May God grant that we succeed! I ask not success for mere safety to my insignificant person, but for the sake of human knowledge and for the vastness of the triumph. And yet the feat is only so evidently feasible that the sole wonder is why men have scrupled to attempt it before. One single gale, such as now befriends us, let such a tempest wheel forward a balloon for four or five days. These gales often last longer, and the voyager will be easily borne, in that period from coast to coast. In view of such a gale, the broad Atlantic becomes a mere lake. I am more struck, just now, with the supreme silence which reigns in the sea beneath us, notwithstanding its agitation, than with any other phenomenon presenting itself. The waters give up no voice to the heavens. The immense flaming ocean raids and is tortured uncomplainingly. The mountainous surges suggest the idea of innumerable dumb gigantic fins struggling in impotent agony. In a night such as is this to me, a man lives, lives a whole century of ordinary life. Nor would I forgo this rapturous delight for that of a whole century of ordinary existence. Sunday the 7th. Mr. Mason's Manuscript this morning the gale by ten had subsided to an eight or nine knot breeze for a vessel at sea and bears us perhaps thirty miles per hour or more it has veered however very considerably to the north and now at sundown we are holding our course due west principally by the screw and rudder which answer their purposes to admiration i regard the project as thoroughly successful and the easy navigation of the air in any direction not exactly in the teeth of a gale as no longer problematical we could not have made head against the strong wind of yesterday but by ascending we might have got out of its influence if requisite against a pretty stiff breeze i feel convinced we can make our way with the propeller at noon to-day ascended to an elevation of nearly twenty five thousand feet by discharging ballast did this to search for a more direct current, but found none so favourable as the one we are now in. We have an abundance of gas to take us across this small pond, even should the voyage last three weeks. I have not the slightest fear for the result. The difficulty has been strangely exaggerated and misapprehended. I can choose my current, and should I find all currents against me, I can make very tolerable headway with the propeller. We have had no incidents worth recording. The night promises fair. Postscript by Mr. Ainsworth I have little to record, except the fact, to me quite a surprising one, that at an elevation equal to that of Cotopaxi I experienced neither very intense cold, nor headache, nor difficulty of breeding, neither, I find, did Mr. Mason, nor Mr. Holland, nor Sir Everett. Mr. Osborne complained of constriction of the chest, but this soon wore off. We have flown at a great rate during the day, and we must be more than halfway across the Atlantic. 
we have passed over some twenty or thirty vessels of various kinds, and all seem to be delightfully astonished. Crossing the ocean in a balloon is not so difficult a feat after all. Omne ignotum pro magnifico. Memorandum. At twenty-five thousand feet elevation, the sky appears nearly black, and the stars are distinctly visible, while the sea does not seem convex, as one might suppose, but absolutely and most unequivocally concave. Footnote. Mr. Ainworth has not attempted to account for this phenomenon, which, however, is quite susceptible of explanation. A line dropped from an elevation of 25,000 feet, perpendicularly to the surface of the earth or sea, would form the perpendicular of a right-angled triangle, of which the base would extend from the right angle to the horizon and the hypotenuse from the horizon to the balloon. But the 25,000 feet of altitude is little or nothing in comparison with the extent of the prospect. In other words, the base and hypotenuse of the supposed triangle would be so long when compared with the perpendicular that the two former may be regarded as nearly parallel. In this manner, the horizon of the aeronaut would appear to be on a level with the car, but as the point immediately beneath him seems, and is, at a great distance below him, it seems, of course, also at a great distance below the horizon. Hence, the impression of concavity, and this impression must remain until the elevation shall bear so great a proportion to the extent of prospect, that the apparent parallelism of the base and hypotenuse disappears, when the earth's real convexity must become apparent. Monday the 8th. Mr. Mason's Manuscript. This morning we had again some little trouble with the rod of the propeller, which must be entirely remodelled for fear of serious accident. I mean the seal rod, not the vanes. The later could not be improved. The wind has been blowing steadily and strongly from the northeast all day, and so far fortune seems bent upon favouring us. Just before day we were all somewhat alarmed at some odd noises and concussions in the balloon, accompanied with the apparent rapid subsidence of the whole machine. These phenomena were occasioned by the expansion of the gas, through increase of heat in the atmosphere, and the consequent disruption of the minute particles of ice with which the network had become encrusted during the night. Threw down several bottles to the vessels below, saw one of them picked up by a large ship, seemingly one of the New York line paquettes endeavoured to make out her name, but could not be sure of it. Mr. Osborne's telescope made it out something like Atalanta. It is now twelve, at night, and we are still going nearly west, at a rapid pace. The sea is peculiarly phosphorescent. Postscript by Mr. Ainsworth. It is now two a.m. and nearly calm, as well as I can judge, but it is very difficult to determine this point since we move with the air so completely. I have not slept since quitting Wheelvore, but can stand it no longer, and must take a nap. We cannot be far from the American coast. Tuesday, the ninth, Mr. Ainsworth Manuscript, 1 p.m. We are in full view of the low coast of South Carolina. The great problem is accomplished. 
we have crossed the atlantic fairly and easily crossed it in a balloon god be praised who shall say that anything is impossible hereafter the journal here ceases some particulars of the descent were communicated however by mr ainsworth to mr forsyth it was nearly dead calm when the voyagers first came in view of the coast, which was immediately recognized by both the seamen and by Mr. Osborne. The later gentlemen, having acquaintances at Fort Moultrie, it was immediately resolved to descend in its vicinity. The balloon was brought over the beach, the tide being out and the sand hard, smooth, and admirably adapted for a descent, and the grapnel let go, which took firm hold at once. The inhabitants of the island and of the fort thronged out, of course, to see the balloon, but it was with the greatest difficulty that any one could be made to credit the actual voyage, the crossing of the Atlantic. The grapnel caught at 2 p.m. precisely, and thus the whole voyage was completed in seventy-five hours, or rather less, counting from shore to shore. No serious accident occurred, no real danger was at any time apprehended. The balloon was exhausted and secured without trouble, and when the manuscript from which this narrative is compiled was dispatched from Charleston, the party was still at Fort Moultrie. Their farther intentions were not ascertained, but we can safely promise our readers some additional information either on Monday or in the course of the next day, at furthest. This is unquestionably the most stupendous, the most interesting, and the most important undertaking ever accomplished or even attempted by men. What magnificent events may ensue, it would be useless now to think of determining. End of the Balloon Hoax Read by Sandra Luna